Satellite Podcast. I'm your host, David Day. So I've been uh, reading through the book of Mark for the last few months, and uh, I've been using that commentary that I've mentioned to y'all before, the Enduring Word commentary, and I have really enjoyed some of the insights that it provides into the cultural setting that was going on when Jesus was doing his ministry. So here I land in Mark 7, reading the story where Jesus is with his disciples, and as they enter into Jerusalem, they are seen eating with unclean hands. So picking up in verse 1 of Mark 7, it goes like this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So, stopping right there, Jesus responds by basically blasting them and telling them they're hypocrites and that they care about their own made-up rules and traditions more so than they do about following the actual blatant commands that God gives. And he goes on to declare all foods clean. And later on, he's discussing this event separately with his disciples, as he often did, and tells them, even putting dirty hands on your food and putting that food in your body would not make you spiritually unclean because whatever goes into your body will eventually be passed out of your body. Instead, rather, what's in a person's heart makes them unclean. And Jesus wanted to hammer home this point that the kind of purity he desired wasn't outward, but rather purity of heart. Now, what I wanted to get to was some really interesting context for this passage that David Guzik from Enduring Word Commentary provides. So apparently the religious leaders of Jesus' time were talking about a ceremonial washing, as it says in, I think, verse 4 of this chapter. This was not for the sake of cleanliness. And I think that's kind of lost in us when we read this. We see ceremony, we think of ceremonial washing, and we're like, okay, that doesn't really mean a lot to us. But apparently, observant Jews of this time washed their hands before every meal. And it was an ordeal, y'all. So first you had to wash your hands to make them clean. Then you had to make them spiritually clean. And there was even a prayer that you said while this was happening. Blessed be thou, O Lord, King in the universe who sanctified us by the law and commanded us to wash the hands. For these ceremonial washings, they used a special stone vessel of water because ordinary water couldn't be kept. Because ordinary water would not be good enough. So it had to be special set-apart water. And you had to wash your hands in a special way. You started by taking enough of this water to fill one and one-half eggshells. Then you poured the water over your hands, starting at the fingers and running towards your wrist. Then you cleaned each palm by rubbing the fist of the other hand into it. Then you poured water over your hands again, this time for the wrist towards the fingers. And apparently, the really strict Jews did this not only before a meal, but between each course. And the rabbis were deadly serious about this. They said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. <laughs> And one rabbi who failed to perform the ritual washing was excommunicated. And another rabbi and a, and another rabbi 
was imprisoned by the Romans and he used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing instead of drinking, nearly dying of thirst. And the Jews saw this as a badge of honor and he was considered a great hero because keeping to the ceremonial tradition was more important than him living. Whew. Now the Jewish background from this came from the biblical mandate in Exodus 30 and Exodus 40 where priests are told to wash their hands and feet prior to entering the tabernacle. And this provided the foundation for the widespread practice of ritual washings in the time period that Jesus was living in. And what I really like here is the point David Guzik makes about how it's so easy to condemn them and think that this is so ludicrous or so outrageous or even just stupid. But it really was built on what was essentially God-pleasing desires and sound logic. And I like the way he writes it out, something like this. Well, doesn't God want us to honor him in everything we do? Didn't God command the priests to wash their hands before serving him? Should every faithful follower of God have the same devotion as a priest? Isn't every meal sacred to God? Shouldn't we take every opportunity to make ourselves pure before the Lord? And doesn't God say in Psalm 23, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so what he points out is that when you think about it this way, and you have all these questions that you ask that are all focused on honoring God, it's easy to come back and say yes to all of them until you've agreed with the logic that supports the tradition. But in the end, you have a word of man, a tradition of man, a ritual of man that is carrying the same weight as the word of God. If that's what you end up with, you're wrong and your spiritual logic doesn't matter. And this is what the Jews were living in at this time. In Judaism of this time, they honored the written law, but there was also the oral law. That's the tradition of the elders, I'm doing air quotes here, that is mentioned at the beginning of chapter 7. This was man's interpretation on top of the written law. Many of the Jewish leaders saw the oral law as even above the very laws that God gave. And this is crazy for me. So in the commentary, Guzik cites several other sources that talk about these early traditions and how people taught them. And y'all, this stuff is nuts. A rabbi named Eliezer said that he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition of the elders has no share in the world in the world to come. Saying essentially, if your interpretation of scripture does not match what these spiritual authorities that we have elevated say, you don't get in a spiritual inheritance. In the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish traditions in the Talmud, it says that it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. That is bonkers. And then here's some um, the other sayings they had that were found in other various writings of the time. If the scribes say our right hand is our left and our left hand is our right, we are to believe them. <laughs> Literally saying we are to accept the teaching of these rabbis and elevated spiritual authorities over what we know to be logically valid and true. Another one. There is more in the words of the scribes than the words of the law. 
And then this Jewish rabbi, Jose, said, He sinneth as much who eats with unwashed hands as he that lies with a harlot. And so this is the tradition that Jesus is pushing back against. This elevation of not even the words of God, but the interpretations of the ritual traditions that are pulled from the word of God to higher status than God's actual words it's themselves. And it's just crazy. So Guzik puts it this way. There had grown up a great body of traditions. Traditions in the first place were intended to be interpretations of the law and application of the law to circumstances that were specific to their time. Traditions which in the second place became interpretations of traditions and applications of traditions and the traditions in the third place which were interpretations of interpretations of interpretations of traditions. And that's what you end up with. And as I've shared some of my parents' experience with their journey through the church, this is what my parents rebelled against when they left the church. People with dogmatic, damaging interpretations of Jesus that they were spoon-fed and that they were made to believe were true. But, of course, in rejecting that, as I've discussed, I think that my parents rejected some other foundational truths that they should have held on to. But it's easy to see when you're given oppressive theology ritual dogma like this once you realize that it's not what god actually commands it's so easy to reject that and the people that taught it to you along with the other things they've taught you and i understand that and i think this is something that is so strong in american christianity and people like my buddy Bo, who came on this podcast and talked about his struggles with same-sex attraction deals with just crushing anxiety feeling trapped under the weight of these man-made expectations especially growing up in a time of purity culture where sex was the greatest sin and he's thinking here i am with a deviant sexual impulse that i do not feel like i can act on and not only is it sinful it's the worst of all sinful sexual behaviors homosexual sexual desires and just created this just crushing weight that he is still struggling with as an adult And so this is what I've been thinking about in response. This is the application part. What man-made teachings have I and you adopted as gospel? What legalisms or yokes have we put on? To share an example from my own story, to share an example that happened even today in one of my classes at school, uh, I teach PE and I was sharing with some of the students how they needed to wear appropriate length shorts. It's a pretty common thing to do. And I said, essentially, hey, we don't have a dress code for PE, but don't have your butt cheeks hanging out because I had to deal with that last semester and it's just not good for anybody. And some of the girls were talking about this later, asking, well, who was it? And I, of course, I would not tell them. Um, and what is interesting is they ended up in a dialogue about how girls dress for the, on their sports teams because all these girls were athletes. How, how they felt about how these girls dress. Well, this girl's shorts are too short. Her butt's always hanging out. This girl, when we're playing volleyball, rolls up her top so that her stomach's out all of her lower back and blah 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 and it's just not necessary and it's extra and it's excessive and i listened and i didn't say anything because what i realized is that they were not simply making judgments about what constituted appropriate dress they were almost painting it as a moral taboo 
to not dress the way that they thought these girls should dress, to show too much skin or to have shorts that are too short. Um, it's like they thought that showing too much skin indicated something inferior about these girls' character. And I just recognized that line of thinking because I grew up thinking the same way. And we would project things onto other people like they're looking for attention or they don't have any respect for their body, etc. And I realized listening to that today and bringing this all back full circle that that mindset that I have and that I'm hearing is no different than what's happening in Mark 7. We take a godly principle, something like, hey, be modest. Um, don't idolize your own body, things like that. And we extrapolate it often in rational and reasonable ways until it's become burdensome and oppressive. And so here's my question. What are those burdensome and oppressive yokes in your own life? What well-intentioned legalisms have you adopted and internalized to the point where now you view them as doctrinal truths? It's something I really want you to think about. For me, a lot of mine have to do with legalisms regarding the way I speak, not using foul language especially, uh, my prayer life and my devotional life, and especially the last two as I still struggle with viewing myself as unworthy of approaching God intimately if I haven't checked the box in those two areas of being consistent in my prayer life and devotional life. I struggle with those. Those have become like doctrinal truths that I'm trying to break free of in my 40s. And here's the worst thing about these yokes. We tend to impose them on other people, just like in Mark 7. And we create barriers to God and hurdles for people to jump before they can access him. And it's a subtle trap. The enemy is able to use our wholesome desire to please God as a stumbling block. So I just want to lay this before you. Approach God in prayer and ask him to show you any of these well-intentioned legalisms that you have adopted and internalized and that have become yokes in your life. Yokes that end up separating you from him or that you put on other people that puts distance in your mind between them and God. Pray about these things and ask God to expose them to you. And ask God to replace those yokes with the truth of the actual Holy Scripture. Amen. This has been Dave Bethay for the Satellite Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.